Now let's uh, turn for our text to the uh, words that we looked at this morning in the Gospel according to Luke and chapter 23. For context at verse 44, Luke 23 and verse 44 at Calvary. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed or spirated his last, essentially the same word as spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, uh, we began looking at this text Uh, in the morning where Christ is committing, or if you like, entrusting his soul or his spirit. You can use these terms interchangeably. He's committing his soul into the hands of God. And um, that is something that all Christians do. In fact, it comes into the very essence of what happens when we become Christians. Instead of Entrusting ourselves to ourselves, we entrust ourselves to God. That's why David can say in Psalm 31, I commit my spirit to you. And I suppose especially as believers we do it at death, if we are given the privilege of knowing that death is coming. And uh, that is a privilege. To die suddenly is something people want. But it's not really good, not if you're ready. And even if you are ready as a Christian, it's still good to know that your end is approaching. It gives you time to pray what you wish to pray and to say what you wish to say. And uh, we should never despise a deathbed. It's uh, a blessed thing to have, a deathbed. And those who perhaps would rather go quickly should maybe rethink that. But Christ's committing of his spirit uh, to God is very distinctive, just because of who he is. And we saw that in the morning. He first of all commits his spirit in a sovereign way. As Matthew tells us, he actually dismissed his own spirit. Dismissed it into the presence of God as a king would. And he does that too show us and to show everybody in attendance that he has power over this death that is um, um, overpowering himself. He has power over the death that is actually overpowering him. So he commits it as a sovereign. He is in control of his death. And again, of course, he commits his spirit voluntarily. As he told his disciples earlier, 
he would lay down his life of himself. No one would take it from him. He would lay it down of himself. And he clearly shows that here too. It's voluntary. And then again, you'll remember that it is sacrificial. Not suicidal, but sacrificial. He lays down. He doesn't take away his own life. He gives his life. And he gives it for others, not for himself. And last of all, he commits it as an act of obedience to his heavenly Father. Now we saw these things in the morning and we'll just leave that at that. But there is one other way, well at least anyway, of looking at the way in which Christ commits his spirit to the Father. And I think this way opens up a completely different dimension of it. Because he commits his spirit to his Father as an act of faith. Trusting God to take care of his spirit. After all, that's what uh, the word commit or entrust implies anyway. I mean, if if I entrust you to do something, I'm asking you to, to care for it, take over the whole thing and look after it. Same if you entrusted something to me. Paul, for example, committed the gospel, or he asked Timothy, sorry, to commit the gospel or entrust the gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So that is a, a transmission of proper faithful biblical ministry from one generation to the next and trust the sacred gospel deposit to faithful people who will look after it who will in turn be able to teach others so here Christ as an act of faith is entrusting his soul to a God that he sees as trustworthy absolutely trustworthy And to see the text like that shifts the emphasis for a moment from the Christ who is offering to the Father who is receiving the Spirit. Because in a way we didn't, I suppose, say much about him in the morning and it may be helpful to think more of him tonight. The Saviour entrusts his soul to a trustworthy God into thine hands I commit my spirit and when we consider the God in whom he trusts I think it's right to see that God as a God of justice and a God of love a God of justice and a God of love he is a righteous judge And he entrusts himself to a righteous judge. And he is also a loving father. He entrusts himself to a loving father. As a righteous judge, God will judge him. And God will acquit him. And as a loving father, God will welcome him into glory. And he will preserve his soul in glory. And he will reward him. Now let's... Look for a while at all these things uh, with the Lord's help. 
So first of all, then, he commits himself to God as to a righteous judge. Now, that may perhaps uh, cut a little across the way that we think of Christ's Spirit going to glory. Perhaps we are not accustomed to think of him himself as being judged. But we always need to remember that Christ becomes a man. And we need to remember, as Paul tells us, that as a man, he's a true man, and he is made under the law. In everything, in every aspect of life, he has to be obedient to the moral law of God. And that's because Christ himself, as the man, must give an account to God for everything. He must give an account to the Father of all spirits, including his own, and to the God who is the judge of all the earth, including himself. And just as it is appointed for all men and women once to die, and after that the judgment, so it is appointed too for Christ to die once, and after that a judgment as well. Now, I suppose you could say, was Christ not judged uh, when he was on the cross? Uh, And was his judgment not over on the cross? In other words, in his sufferings, which he suffered before the the death and the spiration of his soul, was that not his judgment at the hands of God? Well, in one way, yes, that was indeed a judgment. But it was only a judgment born on behalf of his people. And absolutely and exclusively on behalf of his people. The Lord suffered nothing on the cross that was due to himself personally. He had not sinned in thought, word or deed. So nothing that was poured out in the way of wrath or anger upon Christ was due to himself. It was only due to him because he stood for you and for me. He became the sin-bearer. He took our sins. They became his own. He became the guilty one. And so he endured the judgment of God. He endured what we deserved. Now, Understanding that and appreciating that goes right to the heart of who we are as Christians. Uh, The sad thing is that we should at any point become forgetful of it. Or as I mentioned earlier, even in connection with other things in life, that we should, God forbid, take such a thing for granted. The wonder of it, that he should do such a thing, actually stand for us to take our judgment but that is what he did and it was our judgment alone with which God judged him but on the event of Christ's own death he must give an account for himself for the life that he did live and for the way in which he died and all through his life he is conscious of that For example, on the way to the cross itself, 
were told that he was suffering all kinds of reproach and taunting and people pulling faces at him and things of that kind, but were told that when he was reviled or blasphemed, he, he didn't revile back. He didn't give back what he got. We're told that he committed himself to him who judges righteously. He committed himself to the judgment of God. He also knew that those, his accusers, his mockers and blasphemers, were also to be judged by God. For him that was enough. And sometimes in life, well, God has appointed courts for a purpose, but very often in life it's best to leave a thing be knowing that God is your judge and God is your accuser's judge. If it can be left there, leave it there. Sometimes it can't, but like I say, if it can, let it be. Let the Lord be judge between you and me. That is how Christ made his way to the cross. But what about the cross itself? When I said that Christ's life needs to be judged, how he thought, how he spoke, how he lived. I mentioned too that the way that he died needs to be judged. And that's so important. He went up to that cross as spotless, holy, harmless, undefiled. But what about on the cross itself? What about these awful three hours of darkness and desolation? which seemed, from the point of view of the sufferer, like an absolute eternity. When, as I mentioned in the morning, the whole artillery of hell was trained against him, with all kinds of blasphemous thoughts and imaginations possible, did he stay pure then? Was he still absolutely holy? Were his hands still clean after the cross like they were before the cross? Was his heart still pure when the devil assaulted him and he found grief and trouble? Was he preserved in it and through it? Or did he sin? I ask respectfully. Did he sin in his heart? Was there a thought out of place in the midst of all that hellish torment? Did he speak a word unadvisedly with his lips? Was there the slightest thing that went wrong? Well, let that be tried. Let his spirit go to God. Let that spirit be opened and examined. Let the multitudes of heaven, angels and spirits of just men made perfect, let them see, let it be declared, was he still holy and harmless and undefiled? Christ believes that God will judge him. And when we commit ourselves to, I'll come to this in a second, when we commit our lives to God and when we commit ourselves to God at death, we commit ourselves to God as judge too. Now you may say, well, that's, that's a more forbidding way to think of God. I would rather think of myself committing myself to the mercy of God, not, not to the judgment of God. Well, hold on, and we'll look at that in a second. But the Lord is not afraid to commit himself to the judgment of God. Because he believes that not only will God judge him, but God will judge him righteously. He believes that. 
And in spite of all that's, that he's been through himself, he still believes that God is a righteous and holy judge. We confess that when we become Christians. And it's always easier to confess things like that be, before we've been tried in certain ways. And sometimes when you pass through certain experiences, it's perhaps not so easy to get a hold of God's righteousness and his justice. That's why at various points in the experiences of God's people, particularly in the Old Testament, you find these questions. Um, Questions to do with the righteousness of God in connection with your own personal suffering. Now, you may reach a place where it never crosses your mind to question that. Well, uh, good for you. And I don't say that flippantly. That is good for you. But it's not everybody's portion. Job, of course, justified God when the trial broke over his head. But as the trial stretched into weeks and into months, it became less easy. And the questions arose in connection with, why is this so? I, I have looked to you and trusted in you. You have the right to give life. You have the right to take life away. But has anyone else lost their entire family in one day? Has anyone else lost all their substance and all their wealth? Has anyone else been covered from the top of their head down to the sole of their foot with sores and with ulcers and with itching skin and left with nobody in the world who understands them or prays for them? Not so easy then. But what is that even in comparison with the Lord? The Lord came to suffer and to endure. And when he saw the cup that was presented to him in Gethsemane, he sweated a bloody sweat. Seeing the thing was enough to cause a bloody sweat, never mind drinking it. The horror of drinking it is beyond comprehension. But that was to experience it. He entered into the pains of hell on the cross, or, if you like, the pains of hell entered into him. And for these three hours, which seemed from the perspective of the sufferer to be eternal, there's all kinds of hell in the Saviour's soul, by permission and by the work of the devil. Now, after that, has his view of God changed? Is he still prepared to justify God? Is he still prepared to pronounce his father righteous and to pronounce him holy? Well, yes. Yes, he is. He comes out of it as he went into it. You are holy, just in all your ways, and holy in your works, each one. I still believe your righteousness. And you know, that is the mark of the Christian you may be shaken in that, like Job was for a time, or Jeremiah too. Uh, for example, in Jeremiah 12, he begins by saying, You are righteous, O Lord, but let me question you about your judgments. Strange thing. You are righteous, but let me question you. We may be shaken for a time, but the believer comes out of even God's most difficult dealings. God's fieriest crucibles and says yes you are right yes you are holy 
yes, you are just. I know that what I passed through was for my good, and I believe it. And had you not, um, and, and would that, were that not so, um, you would be less than you are. But I know that the only reason it was permitted was for my good and for my holiness. So Christ believes that. He commits his soul to a judge and a judge who he still believes to be righteous in spite of his own pain and his grief. He also believes that his father, the judge, will actually acquit him. And why does he believe that? Well, because he is absolutely sure of his own righteousness. He is as sure of that personal righteousness after the torments of hell as he was before it. And all through life the Lord was sinless. Now, the devil, of course, tried hard to change that, but he didn't change it. And just before the cross, when uh, people were closing the net in on Christ, he turned round and said, Which of you convicts me of sin? What a staggering thing to say. Supposing I were to say that to you, or any of you were to say it to anybody else, which of you can convict me of sin? Well, it's easy to convict me of sin. I'm sure it's easy to convict you of sin too. But he could stand there, this man of, of over 30 years of age, having lived a public life, and he says, which of you can convict me of sin? He doesn't say it as we would do, as though ignorant of our own sin, with a foolish sense of our own righteousness and moral purity, as, as many people are. No. He says it because he knows it to be true. That's why some of the psalms that we sing can only be sung in that highest sense by the Lord himself. Examine me. Prove me. Try my heart and reins. For thy love is before my eyes and thy truth's paths I have trod. With persons vain I have not sat. He did, of course, eat and drink with publicans and sinners. But that wasn't to enjoy their forms of recreation and entertainment. Nor with dissemblers or liars have I gone. My hands in innocence, O Lord, I'll wash and purify. So to thine holy altar go, I will and I will compass it, encompass it. Or uh, Psalm 17, where he says really something similar. You proved my heart. You visited me by night. You tested me. You did me try and found nothing. Nothing. For that my mouth shall not sin, purpose die. As for men's works, by the word that from thy lips doth flow, did me preserve out of the paths wherein destroyers go. Hear the cry, give heed to my prayer that does not proceed from feigned lips or in hypocrisy. Even Psalm 1, that man has perfect blessedness, who does not walk astray in the counsel of ungodly or stands in the sinner's way. He doesn't sit in his corner's chair, but places his delight upon God's law and meditates on it day and night. All he does shall prosper well. The wicked are not so. In the highest sense, 
these things are true of the Saviour. And he knew they were. He knew he was righteous. And he knew he was holy. And he knew too, coming out of his torment on the cross, and he came out of his torment on the cross, he knew hanging there that he had preserved a clean heart and clean hands. He knew it, and therefore his father would acquit him. And therefore he is dismissing his spirit, saying pretty much what Paul said, that I have fought the good fight, and he fought it as no one did before or no one after, and I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. And he could also say what Paul said, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me in that day. And we read in Psalm 21 of how Christ was crowned uh, with glory and with honour, publicly displayed in heaven as righteous and holy, a worthy man, the only worthy man, the only one who ever entered heaven's gate by means of his own righteousness. And thank God he did, because no one else ever could. But because he entered on his own merit, we can enter into his. Notice what Paul said, by the way. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day. Have you ever noticed how interesting a thing it is that when Paul looks to that crown and God giving him that crown, God gives him that crown as a righteous judge. goes back to what I mentioned a minute ago. You would expect Paul to say, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the merciful God shall give me in that day. But he doesn't say that. In fact, what he says is quite bold in one way. The Lord, the righteous judge, will give me that crown quite bold. But is it not a boldness you have as a Christian? And a boldness that I hope I have too? That's the the sense that God has to. Yes, it's his mercy, but it's also his justice. God has to. You can look forward to a crown that the righteous judge will give you too. Not on the basis of your righteousness, but on the basis of Christ's. He's got to. You trusted in Christ. Well, he's got to give you that crown. His righteousness declares that. So, by all means, we cast ourselves on the mercy of God, but we plant our feet firmly on his justice at the same time. Who was... I can't remember exactly how it went, but uh, I think an old woman was asked on her deathbed whether she expected to go to heaven and she said that if she wouldn't be there then that God was not true that he was not truthful and that he was not just bold words but words of faith she knew that God judged righteously and therefore she was saved so he commits himself to God a righteous judge But then he also commits himself to God as a loving father. 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I think that involves three things. First of all, there is a father's welcome. He knows that the father who loved him and always loved him, in whose bosom he always dwelt in that most close and intimate face-to-face fellowship, he knows that that father loves him still. Now make no mistake, when he is under the wrath of God, there is a change in Christ's experience. There isn't a change in his relationship with God, but there is a change in his experience of that relationship. And we can follow that too. And that's why, just to go back to what I mentioned in the morning, there is one saying on the cross where Christ refers uh, to God as God, not as his Father. Always in prayer, Christ refers to God as his Father. But on one occasion, he does not. And on that occasion, he is in the three-hour period of darkness and desolation. Um, At at midday, when the sun was at its brightest, uh, the Lord's soul was plunged into unutterable darkness. That was symbolized by the darkness that actually fell on the earth at the time. The people who were in the presence of the cross must have been mystified that at twelve noon, when the sun should be blazing in its strength, a strange and eerie darkness came over the land. That was almost a kind of sympathy in nature, or a symbol in nature of what was going on in the Saviour's soul. It was as though a veil was drawn over the Saviour himself. A veil that, that we can't really penetrate ourselves because he's left on his own. This is the scapegoat going into the wilderness. This is Christ going into no man's land. This is Christ going into the bowels of hell in his soul, in his soul, or in the experience of his soul, a place from which no one ever returns once they go. Never. That's why in the in the old sacrifice of the scapegoat, the, the scapegoat onto which was confessed all the sins of Israel, the high priest would confess the sins of Israel onto the head of the goat, the scapegoat, and the goat was then led out into the wilderness by the hand of a fit man, never to return, never to be seen again. Christ suffered as no one suffered who ever lived to tell the story. And in that place, his sense of relationship with God has changed. It's not Father. The cry that I'm referring to is the fifth cry on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's not my Father, my Father. I don't mean to say that he is not his Father. Of course he is. But he has no, he has no sense of comfort from that. No, no sense of joy or satisfaction. In fact, what looms large is God the judge who is judging himself because he is bearing the sins of his people in the proportion that the Father sees fit, which he saw in the cup of judgment but he is now experiencing for himself. It's one thing to see a thing. It's another thing to experience it. I know in life sometimes it's the other way around. Uh, There are things that you fear more 
um, in the anticipation. And when they come round, they're not so bad. This is not like that. Because no glimpse of the content of hell can do justice to what it's like. Simple as that. But the fact is that his sense of the relationship is altered. But coming out of that suffering, he doesn't believe that that has changed the relationship with his father. He doesn't believe that carrying all that sin and suffering all that wrath and judgment has changed anything between him and God. Considering the sin that he carried, that's an amazing thing. There's a sense in which you would think that anyone coming out of that would say, well, I am no longer worthy to be called God's son. But when we consider the glory of the one who bore it, it's not amazing at all. The fact is that we speak sometimes of hating the sin and loving the sinner. And that's useful, although it's not entirely accurate, but it's a useful thing that we hate the sin, we love the sinner. But for certain we can say that God hated the sin on his son, but that he loved the son who bore it. We can absolutely say that for certain. And Christ is confident that their relationship stood the strain that sin placed upon it. And for ourselves, that's true too. In one way it's different, but in another way it's the same. When we come to know God as our Father, it is such a wonderful thing to know that the creator of the heavens and the earth is actually our Father. And we can call upon him as our Father in heaven. But then we go on in the Christian life and sometimes we're not so sure. Uh, Sometimes our consciences are defiled because we sin. And sometimes as we sin, as we do all our life long subsequently, from the moment that we first embrace God, we begin to wonder if if the cumulative weight and effect of these sins are putting some kind of rupture and strain on our relationship with God. And sometimes we're conscious of God turning his face away from us and showing us disfavor and disapproval. And when we're honest with ourselves, we understand that. I know why God is angry with me. I know why there's a rupture in our fellowship. And does it mean that I'm actually evicted out of the household? Does it mean that I was a son but I'm not a son? Does it mean I've lost my blessing and lost my inheritance and that God is no longer my father? But no, it doesn't mean that. Your relationship with God stands the stress that sin places on it. And sin places a lot of stress on it. A lot of stress on it. We know that. We, we know the ugliness of what we do. And, and how it comes between us and God. But it doesn't break the cord. It doesn't break that threefold cord that is not easily broken. In fact, cannot be broken at all. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord nothing the love of God has united us to his son and just as sin could not rupture the fellowship with the father and the son neither can sin rupture sorry the relationship neither can sin rupture the relationship between yourself and God what a wonderful thought that is it's not a thought to abuse 
It's not a thought to take some kind of license from us, though I can do what I please. That would only demonstrate that you don't have a relationship at all. But it is confidence. It is assurance. It's comfort and consolation. Sin can't rupture the relationship. And here comes a man out of the bowels of hell, as it were, hanging on a cursed cross, and he says, Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that means that the Lord Jesus Christ is sure that when his spirit enters glory, that he will hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Or, perhaps even better still, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Famously, the father uttered these words at Christ's baptism and also at the transfiguration and something similar in the final week of his life. But there's no word from the cross. No word from the cross. But as the Spirit enters heaven, I well believe that either they or similar words are uttered. This is still my beloved son, and I am still well pleased with him. Even though he entered hell, because he entered it for the sake of my people and his people too. And of course, in his prayers, Christ looked forward uh, to that kind of entrance into heaven. We sang one of them in Psalm 24. I explained it a a little bit just before we sang it. Um, God is enthroned on high, as it were, on a hill. And the question is asked, who shall ascend into the hill of God? Who can know him? Who can have fellowship with him? The answer, whose hands are clean and whose heart is pure. And we're all disenfranchised. Who can climb that hill? It's the hill of holiness. And if ever there was a hill difficulty, that's it. Who is pure enough to dwell with God? As Isaiah said, who can dwell with everlasting burnings? Nobody. And then suddenly someone climbs the hill. His hands are clean and his heart is pure. And the higher he climbs that hill, the harder it is to keep the hands clean and the heart pure. But he makes it. He makes it. And there's a voice, ye gates, that's the gates of the new Jerusalem, where God dwells at the centre. Lift up your heads on high. These are gates being raised up like that. Lift them up. Who's wanting in? Is asked on the inside. The answer, the king of glory is wanting in. The king who is great in might and the king who has been strong in battle. The Lord who fought the demons of hell, who fought principalities and powers. He wants admission. And these gates of righteousness can't stay shut. Set ye open unto me the gates of righteousness and I will enter in and I, the Lord, will bless. Yes, and the Lord will bless you too. The Lord will bless you too. The Lord will bless the Son for his faithfulness and he will welcome him.
home. And he also comes home to a living, to a loving father who will protect his spirit. Now, <clears throat> that needs explanation, of course. What I mean by that is that the work of the Lord's spirit is not yet over. When his soul goes to glory, it's only there for a short while. <clears throat> when we go to glory, when all his people go to glory, their souls remain in glory. Not the Lord's. In fact, he was only there for three days while his body rested in the tomb. He knows that in three days' time he will receive another commission from God to re-enter his cold, lifeless body in that tomb and to reanimate and quicken that body. And for three days, God will watch over his spirit and keep it and God will send it at the appropriate time back into his body. The Lord will keep his soul of course, that's true when his soul goes back into glory too, because as you know, after three days, his spirit came back into his body. He rose again, body and soul. Forty days later, both his body and his spirit are welcomed into heaven. <clears throat> what a, a marvelous welcome that body and soul receives too, because really, it's, it's the ascension of that body and soul into hell that makes our salvation so complete. It's the assurance that our body and our soul shall also go to be forever with the Lord. And the Lord who keeps the soul then is the Lord who will keep the spirit forever and the Lord who will keep our spirits too. God will preserve it and keep it. And he goes home to a loving father who rewards him. God delights to reward because that's in his nature. He delights to reward and he rewards all his people. Above all, he rewards his son. His son is the firstborn and he receives the double portion. And according to Isaiah, when he receives the portion, he divides it with the strong, with all his own people. Joint heirs with himself. All that God gives the son, the son shares with all his people. There's so much in that. So much in that. And there's so much we could say. What does God reward the son with? Everlasting life. Did the son not say, you asked life of him, and you gave him life, even such a length of days that he would live forever? Resurrection life is a reward for the Christ to die in obedience and in love. And as well as that, there is the reward of endless fellowship and glory with the Father. Psalm 21 again tells us that thou hast with thy countenance made him exceeding glad. Now I spoke on Thursday night about the importance of a face. The importance of a face for communicating personality, emotion, feeling, everything. Without a face, we're somehow less than human um, and less than divine because God mysteriously has a face. 
he wishes us to see him in something that can be at least compared with a face. And we certainly see him in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Christ also sees his Father face to face. Thou hast with thy countenance made him exceeding glad. Or Psalm 16 verse 11 where Christ says that you will not leave my soul in hell. You, you will not leave my soul in hell. Rather, he says, uh, there is joy, exceeding and abundant joy. Let, let me just read it as it is, because I, I they're complex verses in a way, and I, I don't want to get them wrong or to, to, to misquote them. Um, My soul in grave to dwell shall not be left by thee, nor wilt thou give thy holy one, that's myself, capital H, capital O. This is Christ speaking. You will not give me to see corruption. Rather, he says, thou wilt show me the path of life. Of joys there is full store. Where? Before thy face. And at thy right hand are pleasures evermore. Thou hast with thy countenance made him exceeding glad. Um, <clears throat> You know, when you really love someone, uh, their pleasure becomes yours. Your happiness consists in their happiness. And the father's delight at the son's work becomes the son's own delight. And uh, when, when we go to glory too, we shall be delighted with the countenance of the son. We're told that we shall see his face and we shall be like him. The last part of his reward, I suppose, we could say is the salvation and the fellowship of his church. The salvation and the fellowship of his church. <clears throat> Imagine our Saviour's delight uh, when, he, when his soul went to glory that day. On the cross, he, he breathes his spirit into his Father's presence. There is his spirit in glory. Just a few minutes afterwards, who comes in but the penitent thief? What a wonderful thing that is. For the Lord so quickly to see of the travail of his soul when that poor thief just comes into glory immediately afterwards. That's only one of thousands and myriads and millions. And uh, Psalm 22, and I'm just closing with this. I've gone on a bit longer than I intended to, but um, <clears throat> in Psalm 22, of course, there is a swift change from darkness to light in the psalm. The, the, the prayer of Psalm 22 starts with the Saviour in the darkness of the cross. But halfway through the psalm, he breaks into light because <clears throat> the sufferings of his soul are finished. And suddenly, he just sees the future. And he says, I will show forth thy name unto those that my brethren are. Amidst the congregation, thy praise I will declare. <clears throat> that is actually him seeing himself going home to heaven, where the congregation is. And there's lots of congregations here. But the great congregation is in heaven. And he says, I will declare your praise there to all my brethren whom I have saved. Within the congregation great my praise shall be of thee. 
my vows before them that in fear shall be performed by me. And a seed shall do service to him, and it shall be reckoned to the Lord for a generation in all ages. Now there's plenty more that could be said about that, but let's just leave it at that for now. When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, his last words on earth were, before his death, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. I don't know if you'll know when your time is coming. Um, If you do, I hope you will say that, as he said it, with confidence, knowing in whom you have believed. Let's stand and pray. O Lord, O God, we are thankful that uh, we can rely upon your justice and that the the sins for which your Son suffered are not sins for which we shall be called upon to suffer. A price is paid once, and that is paid once for all. And therefore, we don't just rely on your mercy, but we rely on your justice too. We thank you that we look forward uh, to going home to a loving Heavenly Father who will welcome us as you welcomed him and who will reward us as you rewarded him and who will keep our souls forever even as you keep his. Oh, the blessedness of being a Christian. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Let's uh, close our worship singing from Psalm 91. We, we sang part of this psalm uh, today in the morning. Let's sing the very closing verses tonight. The speaker changes quite often in Psalm 91 and it's not easy perhaps to keep track of it but the very last three verses are spoken by the Father. God the Father and he is referring to his Son. Because on me he set his love, I'll save and set him free. Because my great name he hath known, though the Hebrew word translated know can also mean love. And I think it's good to remember that. Because my great name he hath known and loved, I will him set on high. This is his ascension. He'll call on me. That's in his trouble. I'll answer him. Isn't that wonderful? God will always do that. He'll answer. I will be with him still in trouble. It's true of us too. To deliver him and honour him, I will. With length of days unto his mind, I will him satisfy. I also, my salvation, will cause his eyes to see. How much the Son loves the Father, and how much the Father loves the Son and how much they both 
love their people. The last three stanzas, let's stand to sing. He calls on me, he says,